Morning, everybody. I hope you're all well and you're all very welcome to the Matheson Knowledge Insight Series. Brian Dunn is my name and I head up the Employment, Pensions and Benefits practice here in Matheson. Today, we're going to talk about the imposter syndrome, that paranoid feeling that you're just about to get caught out, that people will realise you're not up to the job, even though it's a job that, based on your track record, you're more than suitably qualified for. Bizarrely, some of the most successful people in the world across any number of different industries and sectors all experience this feeling. People who we would all collectively regard as being at the very top of their game. I'm talking about people like Tom Hanks, Sheryl Sandberg, um, Michelle Obama, superstars like Pep Guardiola, Brian O'Driscoll, Henry Shefflin, even Albert Einstein himself, all at different points in their career admitted to experiencing feelings of, experiencing feelings of imposter syndrome. The very fact that we have a, a number of 480 people on the call today I think is testament to just how far from being unique this is, that if anything, it's quite prevalent in the modern working environment. In fact, in a recent survey that was carried out that we had a look at as part of the preparation for today, 70% of a very large pool of employees admitted that they experienced feelings of the imposter syndrome at different points in their career, and some on quite a regular basis. So if that is the case, why is it that we know so little about it? Why do we hide from it? Why do we... Why are we so reluctant to discuss it with our managers or with our colleagues as part of coaching and development in the workplace? And why don't we just acknowledge it as part of the everyday working environment now? Well, to help us understand a lot of these questions and hopefully turn it into a strength, we brought along a, an internationally recognised expert on the imposter syndrome here today, Caroline Flanagan. Caroline, you're very welcome to this morning's session. And on behalf of everybody in Matheson, it's great to have you here. By way of introduction to you all, Caroline is a coach, an author, a speaker, and a mother of four young boys. She's a Magic Circle trained ex-city lawyer, and she works now with a large number of international law firms, uh, financial institutions, and other organizations in helping them to set and progress their diversity agenda. So Caroline, the imposter syndrome is something which has, I have to say, intrigued me for a number of years since I first heard about it and understood what it was. And I have to also say it was a huge relief, a burden off my shoulder, so to speak, to realise I wasn't the only person in the entire universe who had these moments of self-questioning when you reach certain peaks and milestones in your career. And in fact, we share them with everybody else in the working environment, it seems, including some very successful people. So I'm very interested to hear what we can learn from you about this today. So where do we start? Great. Thanks so much, Brian. What a great introduction. So I'm going to start with a story. So a couple of years back, I'm standing in this enormous hall. Above me, these high-vaulted ceilings. All around me, these oak wood-panelled walls covered in portrait after portrait after portrait. And as far as I can tell, all of them are men and all of them are white. So I'm in a barrister's chambers, right? It's one of the most prestigious in London. I'm there to deliver a talk. What? to what is surely the most intimidating of audiences, right? And just in that moment, as I'm preparing to go on stage, a wave of panic comes over me. I can feel this knot of anxiety tightening in my stomach. My breath is short, my heart's pounding, my palms are sweating, and in my head, the least helpful voice, voice you don't want to hear when you're about to step on stage and speak to a really imposing audience, Caroline, what are you doing here? You don't deserve this. If you do this, you're going to be found out. 
So welcome to Imposter Syndrome. <laughs> Hi, Maths and, and guests. It's great to be here. So glad so many of you have been able to join us for this fascinating topic. I'm Caroline Flanagan. I've had a wonderful introduction from Brian. I'm a coach, speaker, author of two books, mother of four boys, and I'm passionate about helping you to defy the odds, overcome adversity and win battles that you think you can't win. Imposter syndrome is real. And that's a battle that's being fought every day by high achievers, just like all of you, in really high performing environments like yours. But imposter syndrome doesn't have to hold you back. So I found a way to make it my strength and use it to my advantage. And today I'm going to show you how you can do the same. So at the age of 12, I was rejected from an all-white school. And I remember the moment so well, sitting in this dimly lit room. And my mother sat opposite me, holding a crumpled letter in her hand and turning her gaze towards me, her eyes angry, frustrated, hurt. And she said to me, it's not your fault. Places like that, they don't want people like us. So decades later, as I'm standing on that rainy November evening in this enormous hall, surrounded by all of these impressive people, those words were sort of echoing down the years to me. But in that moment, I chose a different thought. I chose the thought, places like this, places like this need people like me. It was just a thought, just a sentence in my brain, <clears throat> but thoughts are really powerful, right? Thoughts, how you think about your imposter syndrome is the difference between doing what you have to do, getting through it, feeling anxious, feeling worried, but just getting on with it and showing up so powerfully and purposefully, intentionally and performing to your potential. So this is how I have made my imposter syndrome my strength, and you can do it too. And we're going to talk about that today. So I've got two objectives for you at the end of the session, and that's that you go away with a deeper understanding of what imposter syndrome is, how it shows up for you, how it may be showing up for people in your team. And of course, with some practical strategies on how to stop it holding you back and how to make it your strength. And how, how it's going to work in the next I'm going to be speaking for now about another 15, 16 minutes. I'm going to talk about what imposter syndrome is, why we should care. The number one mistake I see you making with imposter syndrome is actually making it harder to like turn it around, make it your strength. And then we'll talk about exactly what process I recommend for doing that. And then the bit you really came for, which is the Q&A, the discussion. I know you're going to have loads of questions on this topic. So I encourage you to write them down as we go through. And I'll hand over to Brian, who will curate that Q&A for us towards the end. OK, so what is imposter syndrome? In 1978, two American psychologists, Dr. Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, discovered a curious phenomenon in some of their clinical patients. They noticed that despite being high achievers, they questioned their right to be there. They felt like frauds, felt like they were going to be found out. Clance and Imes described it as this inner feeling of intellectual phoniness. They called it the imposter phenomenon, which became known as what we now know as imposter 
syndrome. So here's how you know you have it. You experience it in different ways. Maybe for you, it's the thoughts. I'm a fraud. My success is down to luck. Any minute now, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder. I'm going to be found out. And if this is you, if this resonates, you're not alone. And if you take nothing else away from today, know this. We all experience it from time to time. It's not just you. But if that doesn't resonate with you, ask yourself, how do I feel? Are there times when I feel that I'm not enough? And I want you to pay attention to how it feels in your body. Like I started at the beginning talking about this wave of panic, the knot of anxiety in my stomach, the pounding heart, the feeling of not enough that only you can recognize is unique to all of us. But maybe that's the level where it resonates more deeply with you, is how you feel when you go about your day-to-day tasks. Or if it's not the thought or the feeling, maybe we can see it, or you identify it in your behavior. And I say we can see it in inverted commas, because I know a lot of you will be here with this interest in, well, how do I spot it in my team? How do I help someone in my team? And I want to preface what I'm about to say with the fact that No one else can diagnose you with imposter syndrome. It's nobody else's job. But as a leader, what's helpful is if you identify, you know some of the behaviors, you can actually offer really helpful questions or suggestions for how that person might might improve, right? So some of the ways you might identify this in yourself or notice and suspect in others, they overwork, overthink, they self-sabotage, or they play small. Now, those are four very specific categories that I've created to actually collectively describe a whole host of behaviors that we see in the workplace. I see it a lot with lawyers. I see it a lot in high-performing environments. The perfectionism, sign of overworking, right? Spinning in your own head, being like undecided, questioning whether you know enough, terrified of that question that you won't know the answer to. Yeah, that's the overthinking. Self-sabotage, beating yourself up over the smallest mistake, discounting praise, focusing on negative feedback, thinking, making it mean something about you, and then playing small. All the ways in which you hide behind hours and hours of work, but you don't want to be seen, right? you don't want to be visible, you avoid that risk of being exposed. So I'm curious, let's take the pulse of the room. Based on what we've talked about, even just briefly, What has been your experience? Have you experienced imposter syndrome? Can we have the poll, please? So do you experience it often, sometimes, or have you never had any of those experiences? If you could vote and we'll see who's in the room. Just give you a couple of seconds. Okay, look at that. I love asking this question live on a session like this. I could tell you 50 different ways that you're not alone that imposter syndrome is prevalent. But look at that in black and white and blue, right? 52.8% of you, well over half, say you experience it often, yeah? 40, so almost half of you, sometimes, yeah? It's all there for us to see. So what do we do about it? So we've got this understanding of what imposter syndrome is. Why do we care? Right, it's holding you back. It's hard to be an effective leader If, because you're overthinking, overworking, playing small, self-sabotage, you're caught in the weeds, it's hard to make decisions, building relationships, strategic relationships is hard because you're stuck in your head the whole time, worrying what other people think about you. 
If your work-life balance is poor because, well, you're overworking all the time, you're stressed, you're anxious, you miss opportunities. And when you're sabotaging yourself, your confidence never grows. So let's see what we can do about that. The first step, however, is I want you to stop making this mistake. It's a common mistake, one I see all the time, and that's resisting imposter syndrome. And there are three ways I see you doing that. Firstly, it's this desire to get rid of it, like an urgency. Can you tell me the secret trick? Can you wave the magic wand? How do I get rid of it? When will it go away? And it's almost as if you're waiting for it to go away until, right, this idea is you can only perform to your potential when it's gone. Another way I see you resisting it is when you argue with it, right? So you tell yourself, no, but I worked really hard to be here. I do deserve it. It's not down to luck. But you're feeling one way, right? And you're telling yourself a different way. And those two things are just like creating this tension. Another way I see you resisting it is deflecting it. And that's where you have the experience of saying, it's not me, it's you. So instead of using it as an opportunity to understand, get deeper awareness of what's going on for you in certain moments and how you can solve for it, the focus is on everybody else and what everything else needs to, needs to change so that you can get rid of it. And look, don't misunderstand me. All of these solutions, it's not that they're wrong. If they are working for you, amazing. Keep doing it, Right. But if they're not, if you're still holding yourself back, if you're still displaying those behaviors and you're still looking for a way of struggling with this, then I want to invite you to try a different way. The first step is acceptance, right? And what that means is knowing, understanding you're not alone. We've talked about that. It's believing that nothing has gone wrong. It's recognizing that it's just the way your brain is responding to its awareness of the environment you're in the level of comp competition, the pressure you're in, it's what your brain does, is basically want to look for the nearest exit, right? Being willing to tolerate the discomfort and, and this is a great barometer for how willing you are to accept your imposter syndrome, being willing to talk about it, talk about it openly. So let's see where you are. Can we have the next poll on the slides, please? How willing are you to talk about imposter syndrome in your work environment? Let's have some votes, please. Are you willing? Are you a little bit nervous about it? Or are you absolutely reluctant and terrified to do it? Let's give you a couple of seconds to think about that. Okay, so what we have is 15% of you feel, yeah, willing, I'm going to talk about it. That's okay. I feel okay. Safe to do that. 25% of you a little bit nervous. And most of you, nearly 60%, actually quite reluctant. And what I want to offer is what a great opportunity this session is to change that. For those of you who are willing, fantastic. Even more of an excuse to bring it up. If you're nervous, if you're reluctant, use this session as a cover. Because this talking about it is an essential part of gaining authority over it, right? And if you can have, start a conversation where you can say, I went to this great session, we talked about imposter syndrome. Apparently, these are the signs so that you can create a safe context in which to talk about it. So I want to challenge you to maybe test that out after this session. And we can pick this up in the Q&A if you have questions about how to do that. Okay, let's talk about solutions in the next sort of six or seven minutes we've got left. I want you to think about solving 
imposter syndrome, think about it from two different angles. Think about it at a practical level of, okay, these are the behaviors. How do I solve for those? How do I solve for how it shows up? And then there's the thinking level, the mindset level. And this is the level you want to approach it in order to make it your strength. So let's look at the practical level. What you'll see is three columns. On the first column, you've got the four different categories, types of behaviors, which as I explained, were indicative of imposter syndrome. In the middle column, what you can see is the skill that you want to build. So what you want to focus on doing to help you stop, right? The behaviors, change that behavior. And then in the third column, it's for you as a leader. So if you're noticing you have someone in your team who overthinks, spends a lot of time in their own head worrying, catastrophizing, you'll see an example of a question I invite you to ask them that can help take them out of overthinking in this example and put them into focusing on what they do know, all the knowledge they do have and getting started. So by way of example, if you are an overworker, then your, your job is to focus on adding value, not doing more work, yeah? not doing more, adding value. Is this adding value? And as the leader, you can ask a question like, what is essential here? You see your team member working late at night, working all the hours, head down, and you suspect there's overworking. Okay, what's essential here? Really going to help to focus the attention on Take it out of the, I need to do more to make sure I'm not exposed. I need to make it perfect. Yeah. So you'll see those examples. I won't run through them all in too much detail. because There's other stuff I want to cover before we go to the Q&A. Making it your strength. This is the second way then to solve for it. This is how we solve for it at a mindset, at a thinking level. And when we approach it at a thinking level, we make changes there. That's how it changes us at an identity level. That's how, if you've followed me or you've seen any of my podcasts or my posts on this, you'll, and my, even in my profile sometimes, I would describe myself as an imposter sometimes because it's become such a core part of my source of strength to me that I identify with it. Like that's how far I've come in my relationship with imposter syndrome. That's what's possible. So to make it your strength to just two steps, know your story and choose your thoughts. Let's look at each one of those in turn. Know your story, which simply means being able to answer the question, why do I have imposter syndrome? Until you can answer that question, it will always have more authority over you than you do over it. And that's because you'll be in the emotion of it and the struggle of it because you don't understand it. Understanding my story has been the game changer for me and just being able to really look myself in the mirror and understand what's going on. And we'll talk about how I'll give you an example of how I how I've done that. So the simplest way really simplifying this down and the time you have available is, well, what is it that makes you feel different? Is it that is it your gender? For me, my ethnicity for sure and my gender has played into that. Is it your age? Is it where you were educated? Is it something somebody said to you 20 years ago? Is it the fact that you don't have the same, you didn't have the same pathway, right, to where you are as everybody else. Yeah, know your story. The second step, you choose your thoughts about it. What do you want to make that story, that difference about you, your imposter syndrome? What do you want to make it mean? So by way of an example, my I had a really 
like a major imposter syndrome crisis, can be a bit dramatic with my wording, it felt like a crisis at the time. I was writing my book two years ago and my book is called People of Colour, Imposter Syndrome and the Struggle to Succeed in a White World. And I was almost at the end, there was the usual shifting deadlines, but I was almost there. And then George Floyd was killed and the world exploded. Suddenly, the spotlight, everybody's eyes on everybody's lips was the black experience, right? And there I am, I've written a book with a really powerful message of leadership in there. And all I felt in that moment, like my imposter syndrome was triggered so badly. And all I could think is, I can't do this. Who am I to write this? Who am I to lead on the black experience? You see, I was the only black pupil in an all white school from the age of six. My teachers called me Lady of the Jungle. My friends said, Caroline, you're not like normal black people at all. You're actually quite nice. And then I'd go home and my relatives, my cousins, would call me coconut and tease me for having my head in the books and like laugh at my so-called white ways. Who was I to write about the black experience? But I use the process that I've shown you today. Acceptance, nothing's gone wrong. Feeling the emotion, they were quite messy. There were tears involved. <laughs> there was waves of panic, but not resisting those, right? And when in my coaching program with my clients, I have a process that actually helps you to like experience emotion and release it and just let it go. And it frees you from it. So I did all of that stuff I talked about in terms of acceptance, being willing to talk about it. That calmed my nervous system down a lot. Then I went back to my story. And what I understood from my story was, oh, I'm exactly the person that needs to lead in this way. I'm the perfect person to write this book. And so the thought I chose in that moment, instead of who am I, I'm not the right one, what do I know? I shouldn't be here, it shouldn't be me. This is what I chose. I'm the one they need. Just a thought, just a sentence in my brain, but a powerful thought. The difference between I cannot put this book into the world, I cannot lead in this way, and showing up in more powerfully than I ever have before. I'm the one they need. That's just one of the thoughts I choose to have about my imposter syndrome. Here are some of the others. I'm not the only one in the room. I'm the first. Places like this, you've heard this one, need people like me. I create my own luck. I know how to do hard things. I'll figure it out. I'm an example of what is possible. And I'm the one they need. I want you to think about how differently you would feel if you had thoughts like this. And I put these thoughts up there because I want you to borrow these thoughts, try them on. And these thoughts are not, they are thoughts, right? They're not things you see on a page or on the screen and think, oh, would that work or won't work? They are thoughts that I practice, yeah, that I use all the time and that become ingrained in me and are forming part of my identity. So I can go out into the world and anything can happen and trigger my imposter syndrome. I know where to take my brain. I know how to think to 
to make that situation, make imposter syndrome serve me, make it my strength. Because this is how I feel when I think those thoughts. Motivated, resourceful, resilient, purposeful, courageous, so powerful. All because I have a thought, right, in my brain that creates the sense that gives me strength. And it's interesting when I think about the story and why that is so effective. For me, knowing my story is it's like proof of my strength. It's proof of how I'm strong. And in your story, the proof is there too. You just have to take a minute to look for it and be willing to find it. And in that story is the key to your value. Like I understood my unique value of having had that experience of being the only black people in an all-white school and being in a black family that did not value or recognize education or any of that and that experience. Like all of that, which there was a time that felt so debilitating, so discouraging, but actually I can see my unique value because of my personal experience. So understanding your story is so important. And I love how that gives me such a competitive advantage, right? Because as I said, there can be adversity, uncertainty, there are challenges, there'll be change. Knowing that I am somewhat, I can access resilience and purposefulness. Don't know if that's a word, let me know if that's a word. But knowing I have access to those emotions and to showing up to my work, to my family, to those who I lead, Knowing I can do that is just so powerful and very different to people who are walking around feeling entitled to be here, who are walking around feeling, well, it was, I'm like everybody else. We're all the same. It's very different to a different way of looking at unique value when you're all the same. I recognize my unique value because of how I'm different. And my favorite bit is that I can show up vulnerably as I have today, but so powerfully, right? And be leading example. Okay, so after that roller coaster, I'm going to hand back over to you, Brian, and we can get stuck into some questions. Thanks a million, Caroline. That's been hugely insightful and, and really practical as well, and how people can go about actually applying this in practice, which I think is always the, the challenge. We have had a few questions in in the last few days in advance of the session. So maybe just to start with the first one, and we've had three or four different versions of this question. So I'll try and group them all together. And I suppose it deals with a question I saw in some of the material yesterday, which is, if everybody has it, does it exist at all? And is it, probably the core question here is, is it helpful to call it a syndrome or even to label it at all? And, and I know from the original 1978 study you talked about at the start, it was actually coined the imposter phenomenon rather than syndrome. And, and probably phenomenon sounds a little bit more positive than syndrome. But I'd be interested in your views on that. So over to you. Yeah, yeah, of course. So if everybody has it, does it exist? Do you know, my mind went straight away, Brian, to COVID. I just thought, does, if everybody has it, does it mean it exists? Mm, yeah, pretty sure it did. Good answer. Um, <laughs> so I, I won't spend too much time on that question. But to the point about, is it helpful to label it? So I always approach imposter syndrome, which is the common label now, from the perspective of, okay, so what is helpful? Yeah. And one thing I know from my experience, I remember reading like, like those three initial symptoms, right? Those thoughts, feeling like a fraud, success down to luck, it's going to be exposed. I remember reading that in a book 25 years ago and literally my jaw dropping. I could not believe it. It was as if like 
was going to say something that exploded in my brain because just seeing that down there and knowing it had, like having those thoughts recognized is number one. Seeing it had a name, there's a name for it. Oh my gosh, it's a real thing. It's not just me. It's a thing. There's a name for it. And if there's a name for it, that means I can go out and find a solution for it. So I've always found it just incredibly helpful to be able to identify a very unique form of self-doubt. We all experience self-doubt in different scenarios, but there's something very specific about imposter syndrome, which is the imposter element. Okay, so being able to call it something, being able to put on a session like this and those words attract so many people to it. It is helpful. Right. Syndrome versus phenomenon. Honestly, my thought about that is that if we called it imposter phenomenon and we talked about that in the conversations that are being had around that, we'd end up not liking the word phenomenon either. So I don't think it's about the word, the specific word. I think it's about how we think about it and how we talk about it. Okay. Thank you for that. The next question, this one has come in a lot, uh, and I feel slightly strange as a man asking you, a woman, this question, but this is how the question was articulated. (laughs) Do men experience imposter syndrome? Brian, I want to ask you that question. (laughs) Well, look, and I'd love your views on this too. I think it's only, only like, right, that you you comment as well. But I certainly have clients who come to me for help with their imposter syndrome. I give lots of talks like this. People in the audience come speak to me afterwards. The audience also includes men. I 100% believe it impacts men at all. And I never really have men ask me the question, do men experience imposter syndrome? I only have women ask me that. And I think that's that sense, like, is it just a gender thing? And the answer is absolutely not. And I suppose to answer your question, then, if we check the data, when we go back to the poll that you ran earlier on, nobody said they never experienced it. And while I haven't had a look at the list of people on the call today, I know we have very large numbers and it's not 100% female. So I think of itself that answers that. But actually, when I saw the question coming in and that it was more than one person asking this over the last couple of days, I did out of curiosity. I was surprised by the question, first of all, but out of curiosity, I Googled to see could I find strong examples of men who everybody would assume were born super confident and, you know, achieved their success through that. And that's why I was so interested to find examples like my wife's hero, Pep Guardiola, Brian O'Driscoll, Henry Shefflin, Tom Hanks, people like that. And that was after, to be honest, two or three minutes of Googling. So no doubt uh, there's loads more data there to back it up. And I think it's about the willingness to talk about it that can often distort that the perception because what I do see is much more engagement around the topic, whether it's online or in sessions. And often, now I used to do a poll, I would occasionally do a poll before a session where I could see the distribution of like men to women who said they experienced it. And it always looked pretty close to even. But in the room then, the number of attendees would often be overwhelmingly women out of the attendees. And so that would skew the perception. So I'd just say really to back up what you've said, that just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Doesn't mean it's not there. The next question then is quite simple, really. Does it ever go away? (laughs) Well, I have yet to meet anybody who had imposter syndrome and then it went away forever. What I do believe it does is ebb and flow. I worked with a client who I worked with her for a period of six months and then she was a great career, a lawyer, she's a partner in a law firm, and then she... She moved firms, came back, we were working together and she's like, 
my imposter syndrome's come back. And I said, it never went away. You just got really, you just had so much authority over it at this level of being a senior associate. And now you're a partner, it's being triggered again, right? So we're just mm. like bringing you up to this new level and helping you to solve for it in a, a more competitive level in a more pressured environment. So my view, it doesn't go away, which is why I consider it a mistake with a small M to be like to have this sense, like if I could just get rid of it, then I yeah. will. Yeah, some of the answers I, I had seen talked about, it comes when people reach peaks or milestones. So they get comfortable where they are, then they step up to the next level and suddenly they're not back where they started, but they're back having that feeling of, of a new challenge. Yeah, which it is. And it's all at a, they're at a different level now. So their brain, you know, or our brains, right, have to adjust to that. So mm, you reset. Yeah. So the, the next question, and this really is practical and immediate, is should I tell my manager if I'm experiencing feelings of imposter syndrome? And there's a related question to that, which is, have you seen instances where that has actually disadvantaged somebody in being so open and honest about it with the manager? So to the second point, I have heard examples of that saying, oh, I shared it with my manager. They didn't understand and told me to just toughen up. So I've heard those examples. To answer the question, should I share it? That I would answer that with a question is, what do you want that to achieve? Okay, so sharing, I, mean, I talk about vulnerability. I think I was talking about imposter syndrome. We help, you want to look at the reasons behind that. So the time when I recommend you do tell your boss or your manager is when you want their support with it. And you either have a sense of specifically what, like you can apply it to a practical specific situation, say, I would like your help with this particular thing that I find really challenging. For example, I am someone I would rather work 15 hours a day just with my head down than actually speak up in meetings. I know that's holding me back. I would like some help with that. I've heard it might be imposter syndrome. Like that would be a context in which I think it would be really powerful and actually quite important to share with your manager that you're aware there's something that's holding you back and you would like their support in overcoming it. So that's always the, the question I would ask is what's my purpose? Am I just looking for understanding or sympathy or any of that? Maybe like speak to a friend or a family member for that part. But what you do want is support in working through it. That's the time, I think, when you speak to your boss. That's what I always advise my clients. Like, let's figure out how we want the boss to help, your boss to help you. And can you maybe talk through a couple more examples of your experience on this particular issue? Because as you were talking through it, when you were going through the slides, I had the same talk myself. I thought, well, what are people hoping to achieve? Are they hoping for the, to hear the manager say, no, you're, you're, of course you you're suitable for this job. I think you're great. That's why we hired you. So are they just looking for a pat on the head, so to speak, or is there more to it? And I suspect there is more to it. Yeah, and I definitely don't encourage you to do that for that reason, because Mm. certainly one of the the identifiers is this need for external validation. And the the challenge there is if you go to your boss and you talk about imposter syndrome, you've got a boss who's very well-intentioned that says, no, but you do deserve to be here. No, but you're brilliant. You're just creating, like, feeding this need to always be validated by someone else. And actually what we want to do and what coaching is so fantastic and effective as an approach is to help that person see, like validate themselves. So on that slide where I shared what you can do as a manager and like the kind of questions you can ask, like asking questions, so powerful, right? What did you learn 
is a great way of supporting someone with imposter syndrome who is beating themselves over one small thing, which wasn't even important, and unable to see all of the value that they contributed or they're unable to take the value from negative feedback. So you as a manager can help and you can ask a manager to help you in those specific scenarios. And that's why I'm really clear about naming those different types of behaviors. It's like, this is the help I think I need. Can you help me see the value in this? This is what I struggle with. So does that answer your question in a more specific way? It does, yeah, no, that, that, that's very helpful. Um, and we talked about imposter syndrome being a very common feature amongst highly successful people and high achievers, uh, and that it's a predictive of success in its own right. And in fact, some of the research has suggested that a certain degree, the right amount, if I can put it like that, the right amount of imposter syndrome brings out the right amount of motivation. So it actually can be very helpful and that people are better with it than without. Um, what, do you th- what do you say to that? I think that's a really curious, I, I can see where that approach comes from because of course, if you are driven by the fear of being found out, yeah? And it is a fear, that's what all those sensations in your body are then of course you are definitely motivated to like work all the hours to do everything, right? to overwork, do all of that, make sure. Mm. So I can see that there's a correlation, but here's what I would ask. If you had a top, a high performing athlete, would you want that high performing athlete to be motivated by fear or by the desire to fulfill, reach their potential? Like what do you think will produce a better athlete, a higher performer? I might be found out if I don't win this race or I can win this race. I believe I'm capable of this. I want to see what I'm capable of. I wonder if I can do it faster. So for me, that's just a really powerful example of how you can achieve to a very high level being motivated by fear. But if you can be motivated by your drive to perform and see what you're capable of, to always deliver an excellent level. For a start, you have all of your resources internally available when you're not afraid. When we're afraid and we experience fear, half of our, like internally, half of us shuts down. Our body is like in like fight or flight. Lots of our resources aren't available to us because fear being such a powerful emotion, like that's, that's all we're focused on. Whereas when we're calmer and more relaxed, more grounded, more focused, more purposeful, those emotions that I listed, okay, we then have access to all of our resources, much more creativity, much more more ideas, we're much more adaptable, we're much freer to perform well than when we're in this fear trap, which is what imposter syndrome is, it's the fear of being found out, right, so if you're being driven by that, we're much more limited in terms of what you can access and how far you can go. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I suppose it comes back to the point about the right amount of imposter syndrome as opposed to too much of it feeding into that equation itself. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it, the right amount as opposed to too much. And I guess that depends on the individual, doesn't it? I would probably Mm. say not so much the right amount of imposter syndrome, but more the degree to which you are managing it, right? The degree to which you can convert that imposter syndrome to a strength. Use it. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So um, I'd be selfish here and ask a question that I jotted down for myself as you were yeah. talking through your own story at the outset. And you talked about that question of what am I doing here? How did I end up here? How do I deal with this? I often think that 
that question of itself, that's a mark of how you know you're growing, you know you're developing your skills. So it's perhaps a good thing every now and again that you do find yourself in a situation where you've never been before and you have to draw upon your experience, your skills, your confidence to know that, look, rationally, I know we've done things like this before, so there's no reason why you can't do this one as well. So yeah. is it a negative to try and drown out that question or should you encourage that question? I actually love that question when we can hear it from a place of curiosity and interest rather than yeah. the fear, right? And just talking about those different levels you mentioned, like those, those peaks and when it, it can kick in at those different levels. I like to think of my experience as being, I like to think of it as every level I move up, like my brain has to recalibrate to the new level, like not just the requirements, what's required of me at that level, but my identity and who I think I am, right? How I think about myself has to catch up with my new, I mean, status with a small S, right? My new level, okay? So asking those questions, I think, is a great way. It's your brain's way of saying, okay, so who am I now? Like, this has just happened. I now have mm. this different title. I now have... In my case, I've now written a book or I'm now working with these clients or I'm now doing this type of work. It's like, oh, and who am I now? And being able to ask, okay, I'm the person that, yeah? I'm the one that people believe in. I'm the one that am leading people. So when you are willing to answer that question, that's when I think it's really valuable. Yeah, that's very insightful. It reminds me of a number of years back when myself and a number of other people were promoted to partnership. We had partner training at the time and one of the senior partners was kind of talking to us about just getting used to the idea of being a partner and explained to us on, on a rational level, the announcement has been made. The clients know you're a partner or your colleagues know you're a partner. So the only person you now have to convince you're a partner is yourselves. <laughs> uh, and that was it exactly. It was just resetting to your new role. Yeah. So the next question, Caroline, is in relation to some recent research that had the title of Stop Telling Women They Have the Imposter Syndrome. Mm. So what's your view on that? Is it a positive <laughs> or a negative? So to reiterate what I said before is it's not something that it's for other people to diagnose you with, right? No one else can tell you you have imposter syndrome and any suggestion that they can, I would say, honestly, I mean, I tell my clients, like, mm, that's only your business if I decide to think about it or own it and I come to you with that, right? So never, I don't think it is right to tell women they have imposter syndrome. To the wider point about it being women and the underlying message that women sort yourselves out or women, that's the reason why there are more of you in leadership is because you have imposter syndrome. That, of course, feels very heavily like a deflection. It's not, and it's kind of the reverse of what I was talking about on the resistance side. When an organisation says, women, you have imposter syndrome, there's an element of we don't need to change, we're great, everything's perfect just the way it is. Women, you have a problem, go away and fix yourself. So, of course, I completely disagree with that. And that is wrong. I think one of the one of the things I see, there are nuances, Brian. So what I see in clients who I'm either coaching on a one-to-one -one basis or even in small groups is the perception that women, that they are being told that they have imposter syndrome and something needs fixing. So sometimes it might be somebody audacious, maybe arrogant, saying it, you have imposter syndrome, go and sort yourself up. But sometimes that's not quite what's happened. And what I've noticed is this has become a broader narrative. It's more acceptable to talk about it. I'm encouraged to come in and talk about it with lots of, I want to say, relatively conservative 
like institutions or industries where there wouldn't typically be, let's talk about our feelings and what we struggle with, that interest in talking about and helping people with it can sometimes be perceived as when making this mean you have a problem. And it isn't always the case. And, you know, I would always talk to someone on more of an individual basis and this would be a real coaching conversation around, okay, so what is being said? What is being offered? How much of this is true? How much do you disagree with? Before I would say they're telling you that you have imposter syndrome and it's because you're a woman, you're wrong. All of which is to say, I think where we have big, like generic statements, like organisations are telling women they have imposter syndrome and this is wrong, then I think we, we just miss some of the, actually some of the opportunity for us to see where imposter syndrome is impacting people and be able to help. But it's not for the organisation ever to directly go out and say it and expect that. Okay, thank you. I have two connected questions here. We'll deal with the first one, and that's whether it's been conflated or confused in more recent years with inclusion, belonging, diversity, and whether people fit in in an organisation beyond the original concept of intellectual inadequacy, I think was the phrase you had from the, the slide. Look, I think they're like deeply connected because what is feeling like a fraud and worrying about being found out if it isn't about not feeling like you fit in or like like everybody else. I mentioned the word difference and that sense of difference is aggravated in an environment when you are the only woman in an all-male team. You know, you are going to feel and be very aware of the ways in which you are different. And this can be what happens is we can equate difference with less than. So what I am saying is actually acknowledging difference not making it mean less than and being willing to see that is really really helpful because what that means is we can see that we have people who are different right if there is diversity in a room we want more diversity in the room because the more diversity there is in the room the more people have a sense of belonging and the more different people you have in a room the less i'm going to feel different to everybody else it's like quite a roundabout way of answering the question. But I feel like the two are in, like really connected and it would certainly help, right? Environments are more inclusive, more diverse, more aware of, or just not have it where there's a type, right? Where there's a, a right mm. type of education or a right way to look or talk or be or a place of background to have had. And that is going to make imposter syndrome it's going to keep it the kind of internal challenge that I still think we need to work on, but it means it won't be aggravated or even provoked by your external environment. Okay, and where you've ended up with that answer leads us very nicely into the second part of the question, which was, isn't it the obligation in the organisation to be more inclusive so that people don't feel that they don't fit in? Yeah, always, 100%. Yeah. This is an interesting one. Should I raise it with a team member if I think they do have it? Or should I just assume most of the team, if not everybody in the office, displays mm-hmm. these qualities at some point and just build it into coaching and development? I love the idea of that. Actually, I love this. Well, let's let's assume everybody has it as a way of normalizing it. So not as a way of talking, going and addressing everybody and telling them they have it. Let's just normalize it. That's just going to make it so much easier to talk about, right? Just as an assumption rather than, oh, maybe you have imposter syndrome. Like still this secretive energy around it let's just 
assume everybody has it <laughs> without actually calling people out specifically and saying you have it. So how do we do that? It's in how we, we look at how people are working. So look at those behaviors. So if you see where you see overworking, where you see overthinking, where you see people struggling with negative feedback, I mean, neg so negative feedback right now, it's the number one thing that's coming up in my coaching sessions is how much, how people struggle with it. So they don't ask for feedback because they're so terrified of it being negative and they receive feedback. Interestingly, it can be overwhelmingly positive, but they will still find it negative, right? And if there is some negative feedback in there, they make it mean something about them. And I'm honing in on this because this is such a common issue I see with the lawyers that I work with. It plays such a major role in holding them back from understanding what they can learn, right? For changing, for improving, for getting better, for stepping up to that, to, the, to what's required of them at the next level. So if we could have, Brian, as you suggest, if we could have that assumption that negative feedback is quite hard to hear, right? That people actually generally are quite scared of it. How amazing would it be if as part of the development and coaching would be actually like, this is how we want to look at negative feedback. This is, this might be what you come up against when it comes to asking feedback. You might not want to, like if that could be part of the training to recognize that that's something lots of people experience, i.e., which is a feature of of an example of imposter syndrome, then we, we can solve for that, right? We can coach around that or do training and development around that. So I think that's really helpful when you see those patterns. There's another related question on the same point, and that's whether you can address the, the symptoms that you've identified there without actually calling out the, the syndrome, because maybe some people don't want to be called out on this and, yeah. and for the manager to say, I can see you are experiencing these feelings, but they yeah. would still like the issues to be resolved. Yeah, so I think that the point is exactly that, Brian, is like to say I can see you're experiencing those feelings. Well, you can't really see that because you can't really tell what feelings I'm experiencing, right? But what you yeah. could do, for example, one of my clients who's on the partnership track and she works, her billables are phenomenal, very smart, very well respected, considered a really central valuable part of the team, but she has her head down the whole time. Nobody knows who she is. Like all of her confidence is in her ability to sit down do the work keep her head down so she's quiet in meetings she doesn't work with any other partners and she will not be promoted unless she has the support and vote of all the partners right in this scenario so her partner one of the things he's supporting her to do is to be more visible he doesn't have to come to her and say i can see you've got imposter syndrome right what mm. he can do is see that her habitual way of working and actually what has got her this far and worked really well isn't enough to get her to the next level. She needs to be more visible. That's very hard for someone with imposter syndrome to start being, to start putting yourself out there, to start showcasing your value, to start talking about cases, to start doing presentations and trainings and more pitches. That's a real challenge. So without saying to that particular candidate, you have imposter syndrome, I can see you're feeling like a fraud and you're feeling like you're not enough. No, definitely not say that. What you can do is say, I can see that you're not, you're doing a lot of your work is behind closed doors and people can't see it. But I can see that lots of partners don't know you, right? How can I support you to suggest ways rather that actually the partner will be able to suggest ways and encourage that person to help them be more visible in the partnership, more visible to clients. 
Can you see that distinction? So don't yes, there's a huge distinction there. Yeah, don't tell me how I'm feeling, but support me if you see that one of my behaviours is holding me back. Yeah, no, it's a really good question, and and I'm I'm glad we covered that one. I can see from listening to you today and and the materials we reviewed in in the run up to this, it's almost like a a twin track thought that people experience that on an emotional level, the the lizard brain, so to speak, takes over, as you explained at the outset, and this voice you don't want to hear tells you, don't go there, this looks scary, don't don't stay out. It's kind of self-protection mechanism, but at the very same time, you can easily, so quickly and rationally tap into, of course you're well able for this, you've done this before, so how is this any different to any other number of challenges you've faced over the years? So how do you tune into that very quickly when the the instinctive brain is taking over? So I think that's actually almost instinctive to do that. Mm. And certainly it's what I think back to before, and by before, I mean before I had this process for making it my strength and stepping into my sort of authority and showing up more powerfully, I would hear that a lot. So I'd have friends, family saying, saying those very words. So I was aware that I could address that voice, right? My imposter syndrome voice, I could like counter argue it. And I see that a lot of people do that very easily. They find the counter argument, but they don't believe it. So you can say, no, but of course you deserve to be here until the cows go home. But if you don't believe it, if you don't feel it, it doesn't work. So I would say the objective is not have the counter argument, argue with it, disagree with it, try and convince it that it's not true, right? It's actually to mm. just acknowledge it and recognize, oh, that's my imposter. And I literally say, oh, hello, old friend. <laughs> that's just my imposter syndrome. That's okay. Everything's fine. Nothing's gone wrong. And actually the not resisting it is what calms it down and creates room for a more measured like grounding in that moment of, okay, so what do I know? And a more practical answer to, okay, so where could I start? It does make lots of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love that. You just want to sort of switch it. You just need those initial sort of questions, that initial redirect. So not taking it on, but redirecting your brain almost like, actually, let me just do the first step. What do I know? And that sort of just releases the tension a lot and can get you going. And very last question, is it fair to say that when you are trying to get people to engage with their manager, et cetera, on imposter syndrome, you're much more likely to get people who are further on in their career than people who are at a junior stage? I suspect the people at the junior stage, they'll never want to admit this, whereas people who feel they have proven themselves, they're not as worried as to being honest about this. Yeah, for sure. The more junior you are, the more hesitant you will be. And we've seen that, like nearly 60% of those on the call are hesitant and I imagine there's some juniors in there right and that's normal but actually we can change that that really depends on the environment it depends on the culture of even your team so potentially if you have a trusted environment you have a lot of trust with those people more junior to you it will be easy for them to approach you and talk about imposter syndrome on the flip side actually more senior I've worked with some very very senior lawyers who would like not dream of wanting to talk about having imposter syndrome. They feel that that would undermine their authority and be seen as a weakness. So actually I feel it's not quite as simple as I'm more secure where I am. I Mm. know what I'm doing. So it's fine. I can talk about imposter syndrome. 
sometimes the higher up you get, and this is a feature of imposter syndrome, the higher you get, the more successful you are, sometimes the worse it can get, which will make you also like less willing to feel, to be vulnerable and, for, and to be found out, which is what it feels like will happen if you talk about it. And one of the sports stars we talked about at the very outset was an example of men who do have these feelings. Henry Shefflin, he was a famous Irish hurler, uh, very, very successful. And he talked about even at a point when he had won eight or nine All-Ireland finals, the very pinnacle of his career, he still had these feelings. And if anything, they got worse. But they got worse because he was even more senior. He was the more senior person on the team. So he definitely couldn't show these symptoms to his to the other teammates and only ever spoke about it after he had retired when, so to speak, he had nothing to lose then. Yeah, right. And so I think it's such an important and great question to end on, Brian, is that what we don't want to do is encourage people to just sort of grin and bear it until they're more senior and the idea that it will all go away one day. Hmm. We are slightly running out of time here. It's great to have had so many people to stay on the line. As a quick wrap up, today's session has been hugely insightful for us all so thank you so much Caroline for joining us today and thank you everybody for for joining in we do have three more knowledge insight series sessions coming up over the coming weeks then just a big thank you to everybody Caroline can I hand back to you to finish with some thoughts for the day yeah absolutely thank you so much for, for that Brian and thank you everyone for for the fantastic questions so such a great discussion yeah so I wanted to just bring you back to why we want to understand this, why we want to figure it out, why we care about it. And it's all about how effective you can be in your role and how effective you are as a person, your relationship with yourself. So I'm just going to remind you of the key points I want you to take away with the encouragement, with the direction that I'd like to continue this conversation. So these are all real, what I put on this slide are also conversation points that you can use to carry on this dialogue. So imposter syndrome is real, great conversation to have a debate around. Nothing has gone wrong, meaning it's everywhere. It's a normal, like part of the human condition, even. I love to think of it like that. It's just part of being a human, right, in this world and not being, not being perfect, right? The power of a thought. Remember, that was the message today that actually to find that thought, to practice a thought can be so powerful and is the difference between it being something that holds you back and it becoming a strength and choose that thought powerfully. I gave you lots of examples and you'll see on the slides, borrow those, try one on, create different thoughts for yourself and see how they feel, how they make you feel going into. I think one of the questions that flashed up caught my eye was what about preparing for an interview right like find a thought that puts you into your most powerful state ahead of that interview solve for it at a practical level this is great for managers for leaders team leaders it's like okay what's the practical behavior i can see my direct report is struggling with how can i support them with that without going in and trying to label them with imposter syndrome or tell them what you think they are feeling subtle but important distinction and then the reframing it at a mindset level so the practicing of those thoughts those powerful thoughts that as you continue doing that that is going to change how you think about yourself and that's going to be what levels you up to that new identity you need to have at the higher level when imposter syndrome is likely to be more triggered and use it to your advantage and what i mean by that is we know that lots of people experience imposter syndrome. So great to be able to 
have conversations about it, have empathy with other people about it. And as a leader, if you can be vulnerable, vulnerably powerful, right, or powerfully vulnerable is probably the right expression, like what an example you will set and what an environment you will create for bringing out the best in your people. So that's it for me today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Imposter syndrome doesn't have to hold you back. It can be your